Hello and welcome to this podcast of the European Patient Safety Foundation. My name is Sven Stender. I'm the president of the UPSF. We have prepared this podcast on the occasion of this year's World Patient Safety Day. The topic of this year's Patient Safety Day is Health Worker Safety, a priority for patient safety. This subject is completely in line with the strategy of the Foundation, which is focusing on empowering the actors in the healthcare sector. With our projects, we aim to support healthcare professionals in doing their best job and by that improving patient safety. The COVID-19 pandemic is a severe threat to our general health in the society, but also a threat to the health of the people that work in that sector. The Coalition for Patient Safety in Germany has published a paper on the second victim effect during that pandemic and the importance of resilience. The title of that paper is Maintaining Capacity in the Healthcare System During the COVID-19 Pandemic by Reinforcing Clinicians' Resilience and Supporting Second Victims. It is our pleasure to broadcast an interview with the first author of that paper, Professor Stramitz. Professor Stramitz is Professor of Medicine for Economists at the Rhein-Main University of Applied Sciences in Wiesbaden, Germany. He is furthermore the General Secretary of the German Coalition for Patient Safety. The interview is done by Professor Diekmann. Professor Diekmann is Senior Researcher at the Copenhagen Academy for Medical Education and Simulation. He is Professor for Healthcare Education and Patient Safety at the University of Stavanger, Norway and a member of the Strategic Task Force of the European Patient Safety Foundation. The interview has been recorded in September 2020. Sven Stender kindly introduced uh, the overall topic for our discussion today, the focus on healthcare professional safety and well-being, and within this broad area, the topic of second victim. You have been working with this topic for a considerable amount of time, and I, I have the honor to interview you around your expertise today. So I would like to start, how would you define the concept of second victim and what can you tell us about it? So first of all, thank you very much for having me here and talking about this topic. The term second victim was introduced by Albert Wu in 2000, describing a doctor being traumatized due to his or her own medical error. But in 2009, Scott and colleagues expanded this term. And now, second victim describes any healthcare professional who is traumatized by an unanticipated adverse patient event, regardless whether it was caused by medical error or not. The second victim phenomenon was there long before COVID-19 pandemic and will of course still be there after this pandemic, as it is indivisibly linked to everyday clinical practice. So it's a very common problem which has already affected lots of healthcare workers around the globe and which will affect a lot more during this pandemic, although a lot of clinicians are very unfamiliar with this concept of second victim phenomenon. Becoming second victim has negative impact in three ways. Of course, it affects the second victim itself, but it also affects patient safety in a negative way. And it may have also impact on the healthcare system. As reported from Italy, for example, during the first wave in March 2020, when traumatization of lots of healthcare workers reduced total capacity of the Italian healthcare system. So basically relevant for 
a whole range of professionals relevant all the time, now very visible with the COVID-19 uh, exactly. pandemic and exactly. also direct impact not only on the persons, the second victims, the potentially also the patients that they are interacting with, but also potential impact on the whole system. Absolutely. Uh, can you say a bit more about what triggers this second victim? You already mentioned a little bit. Could you expand on this a little bit more? When yes, of course. Become a second victim. Yes, of course. So, first of all, doing a medical error that causes harm to a patient is still one of the most common causes to become second victim. As we all have very high demands on the work of ourselves, we do not only disappoint patients and their loved ones, but also we disappoint ourselves. So second victims are more affected by the loss of self-confidence than by the fear of legal actions, for example. But there are also a lot of un unanticipated clinical events which are not related to medical error. This may be any emergency situation in any medical discipline, for example, and unanticipated death or even suicide of a patient, for example. And there's a third kind of trigger, which is very prominent during the COVID-19 pandemic right now. It is the long-term psychological stress during an extraordinary situation like COVID-19, including fear of self-infection with this disease, knowing about a lot of healthcare workers that were infected severely or that even died of COVID-19 infection. Of course, there may be other unanticipated events like an accident or death of a staff member or relative during your shift, which can cause traumatization. So, unfortunately, there are numerous possibilities how to become second victim. So basically, many different trigger points, some of them kind of with sudden onset, some of them kind of building up over time, and a yes. whole range of... Uh, emotional challenges for by the nature of the work basically right yes so there are numerous paths to become second victim and we have to accept that it is not exclusively linked to medical error which some clinicians i have talked to still think and we have to emphasize that it is not your own fault or weakness of any kind to become second victim and anyone can be affected Typically, it is not only a phenomenon for young doctors or nurses, but also colleagues who have faced a long successful medical career can be affected. It can happen to anybody and some experts in this field assumed that the lifetime prevalence for medical professionals will be near 100%. So nearly everybody will be affected at some time during his medical career. Some of the second victims um, then will cope with the situation quite well and will recover within a few days. But surveys among medical staff show that there is a large number of second victims reporting that they feel that they never fully recovered from their key incident. So they will have to carry this burden for the rest of their lives and their medical careers. And as we already mentioned, it's not only a burden for the affected second victim, but has also impact on patient safety, as psychological stress may lead to medical error, also, defensive medicine is a common reaction for second victims, leading to unnecessary overtreatment, for example, which may also harm a lot of patients. Mm -hmm. So we, we kind of can expect everybody is in risk of becoming a second victim throughout their lifespan in, in their career. Nobody is kind of immune against that. How they would react can be very, very different. 
And but one of the effects, like you say, defensive medicine, which might actually have this indirect effect on patient safety by potentially overusing uh, procedures and so on, right? Can you say a little bit more that these differences in, in reaction to being a second victim from from your knowledge of the literature? Do we do we know typical kind of patterns in this? Any other differences between the patterns? Can you say something around this? Well, although there are quite a lot of surveys among doctors showing high incident rates for second victim traumatization in healthcare systems around the world, very little is known about a certain risk profile for those affected the most. So in some surveys conducted in Europe, and we also conducted such a survey among young internists in Germany, they show that there's a higher burden of disease in female doctors. But this, of course, could also be related to reporting bias, as a lot of female doctors take part in the survey. So we are conducting research in Germany right now to find out more about the typical risk profiles of doctors and nurses in order to better understand which healthcare professionals may be more vulnerable and are at higher risk for severe impact of second victim traumatization. And next week, the European Researchers Network working on second victims will be established as a EU coast action in order to share and combine knowledge from all European countries on the second victim phenomenon and also to find out how to improve help for healthcare workers on all levels of our healthcare systems. So kind of these two levels on, on the long-term run, preventive, preparing people better to potentially anticipate the challenges that they will experience but also in an acute situation, helping somebody who is affected, who became a second victim here and now, what to do with, with these people, right? So kind of the two levels here. Yes, so when the research about the second victim phenomenon started, they primarily focused on the treatment of second victims, which is, of course, mandatory and also useful. So they did some research on how to treat second victims, um, in order that they not only can recover from this incident, but they have actually the chance to, to grow from this incident, that they can learn from the key incident, that they share their knowledge to become even better healthcare workers, maybe also some sort of, let's say, patient safety representative. But COVID-19 pandemic showed us that it's not only a question of the individual that is affected. We are facing a global staff shortage of healthcare professionals. So, in Germany, like probably anywhere in the world, we are seeking for nurses and doctors in order to maintain our healthcare services. We all learned about the importance of having enough respirators and beds on intensive care units in the last couple of months. But um, you also need qualified nurses and doctors to treat those patients in the ICU. In Germany, for example, we rapidly increased the even large number of ICU beds due to this crisis, but we were never able to run all these beds as there is simply not enough staff to run them. So maintaining capacity, not only during a pandemic, depends more and more on sufficient numbers of doctors and nurses. But when we look at surveys among doctors and nurses that were conducted about their working conditions before COVID-19, there are multiple red flags, to be honest. There are high incident rates of burnout. A lot of participants report about intentions to leave their jobs. And a lot of participants even report about the use of medication to be able to go to work, to function in any way. 
And in addition to that, studies on the SARS pandemic of 2002 and 3 report that up to half of the clinicians who treated SARS patients in those times showed acute psychological distress, burnout, or post-traumatic stress disorder afterwards. So combining the evidence that nearly 50% of the healthcare staff is affected by the second victim phenomenon within a period of the last five years, in normal times, and nearly 50% is affected during a pandemic, it is reasonable to assume that the most of our healthcare staff members are affected by the second victim phenomenon right now. So now is the time for personal protective equipment like face masks, without any doubt. But we also have to create some sort of psychological personal protective equipment in order to keep those at risk resilient for the situation, which will unfortunately last not only a couple of months, but maybe in worst case, even some years. And speaking of the time when COVID-19 is over, these problems won't disappear, of course. So it is one of the biggest challenges to create working conditions where we do not only recruit more and more staff, but we have to create a working culture for those actually in the front line of the healthcare system to stay there confident, happy and healthy in order to maintain capacity of our healthcare systems. So from this perspective, it is not only important to treat second victims, but also to make healthcare workers resilient against psychological stress. That is imminent in the healthcare sector, and that is not preventable in general. So in my opinion, resilience will be the only way to keep these systems stable and to keep healthcare workers safe and healthy. Mm -hmm. So basically, the, it, it is a given that these emotional challenges will occur over time, whether that's from COVID-19 or any kind of other pandemic, or also the, the smaller things piling up in every day. So, and we would need to find ways to increase the resilience, this psychological PPE, personal protective equipment. How can we uh, help people here? And I will come back to that, what your ideas are around this. Before doing that, I, I just wanted to go back to what you said, with the impact on the system. So if we accept that people are very different in their reactions to these emotional challenges, and then there's also the pattern that I had learned, for example, talking with healthcare professionals here, that many of them use tremendous resources now to function, but they can only keep that up for so long, right? Some of them can keep it up for days, some of them for weeks, some of them for months. But eventually, there will be a point where you cannot keep this compensating mechanism up. And I think that is also one of the challenges that we don't know who, who uh, is uh, keeping up the defenses, how long, right? And that would be a challenge potentially in planning the differences here. Of course, but we also know that there are different treatment options for second victims and that every second victim has the need for psychological treatment. So how do we have to treat second victims? How do we cure second victims? The three-tier model of Scott shows the need for a treatment approach at different levels of care. So most of the second victims don't need psychological treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder which may be the positive message, if they are covered by a protective environment in their own department. So tier one, which is supposed to be sufficient for roughly 60% of all second victims, is peer support at the department level. About 30% of all second victims are supposed to need tier two, 
which consists of help by peer support experts. And only an estimated 10%, maybe even lower, will need professional psychological support at Tier 3. So coming back to local support activities, they can be implemented by establishing a just culture. So treating second victims after medical error in a fair and supportive way and to create a, in general, supportive atmosphere where everybody can express his or her own emotional stress if needed and where everybody can seek for help free from bullying. So if something went wrong or is regarded to be critical, a structured debriefing should also take place in order to understand this incident and to put this incident behind yourself and to carry on in a positive and constructive way. So, talking about punishment after medical error, we have to admit that often the second victim will be punished by its traumatization, even more than by possible legal action, as most of these medical errors will be regarded as unintentional errors. So, many second victims or even relatives of second victims describe that the hardest part of their error was not to be forgiven by the public or even the, the first victim. The hardest part was to forgive yourself for the incident. So I think this makes it very clear that second victims don't need punishment but support from the own institution. Because even if you want to punish them, the punishment already took place. There are some peer support programs in place, like um, in the US, for example, the RISE program at Johns Hopkins or the For You program at the University of Missouri, showing as well beneficial effects in terms of mitigation of the burden of disease, but also they seem to be very cost-effective regarding staff turnover in case of a severe traumatization. So it's a win-win situation, so to say. The main point regarding the local level of support, in my opinion, is that we as doctors and nurses have to learn that sometimes it's not only the patient who needs help, but that there are situations in which we also need support in order to be able to continue high-level performance of healthcare. And it can happen to anybody. Therefore, we need local systems of trained peers who are sensible about this phenomenon the symptoms, and who are able to support second victims immediately if necessary, which could mean that they support them during the shift where any traumatic incident will happen. They also should be trained to detect red flags showing the need for further support, for example, to referral at tier 2 or even 3, to transfer those second victims to other support systems. So this is the counterpart of let's say, physical first aid, which is implemented in healthcare systems. So you need help if you have a heart, a heart attack, for example, but you also need psychological first aid if you are a second victim. And this is not on the agenda of policymakers in healthcare. Uh, and as this is not on the agenda of policymakers, but has to be seen as a very big problem during the COVID-19 pandemic, WHO decided to globally raise awareness for this problem. As the second World Patient Safety Day, which will be held on the 17th of September 2020, will have the slogan, Save Health Workers, Save Patients. Besides this uh, very impactful podcast that we are recording right now, what else can we do to convince the different stakeholders, the clinician and the frontline, but also the 
the higher leadership levels until the political level. What can we do? Well, first of all, we have to inform about this phenomenon, as it is unknown to many clinicians and policymakers. Regarding policymakers, COVID-19 seems to be a quite good opportunity to convince them that this may also affect healthcare systems in general, and that we will have to address these problems quickly and sustainably. So, second victim support should be made mandatory by policymakers. But on the other hand, we also have to convince our colleagues about the second victim phenomenon. So when we did a survey among German internists, we found out that only roughly 10% of all participants knew about this topic. We first asked them whether they knew the term second victim. And only 10% had heard of this term. So 90% had never heard of the term second victim before. Then when we describe this term and we ask whether they would consider themselves to be second victims or to have had such an experience in the, their past, more than 50%, nearly 60% confirmed that they had experienced such kind of traumatization. Let me give another example. In recent day, there was a book release from a prominent emergency medical technician who was a host of several TV shows before he started his medical career, which is quite unusual, for, of course. And he described in a, his uh, first novel a fictional story about a paramedic who clearly becomes second victim. When reading some of the customer feedback about his book, there were even people from the healthcare sector stating that this author would only try to cope with this experience, so it's kind of a self-therapy, and he probably isn't the right person to do this job because he obviously cannot cope with the situation. So this is still a typical stereotype in the healthcare sector, that second victims are too weak to cope with all this. But of course it's not true. It is not a matter of toughness, but a matter of chance whether you become second victim or not. So, to end this stereotype, I think this phenomenon has to be taught in med school during nursing education and in every medical training of every profession. Of course, since we are both medical teachers, we might be biased, but I think there's enough evidence to support this demand. So, we have to teach every student in healthcare sector that this phenomenon is a normal human reaction. It can happen to anyone and there is help. It can be cured and in some cases, it even can be prevented. Looking back at my own medical education, I roughly never heard anything about patient safety. And I never heard about the risk of becoming a second victim. And I never heard about the necessity of self-care to create resilience, for example. So our medical education systems should focus on making healthcare professionals resilient against psychological stress, as this will always be part of our profession. First thing I was told when reading the book House of God by Samuel Chambers, the patient is the one who is ill, full stop. And as we already mentioned, a lot of doctors and nurses would not consider themselves as healthy when starting their shifts. So we know from research in Germany, and other countries that roughly 20% of doctors tell that they take medication in order to be able to function to go to work. And this was research done before COVID-19. So it might have gotten worse since then. 
And the OECD stated in 2017 in their report, The Economics of Patient Safety, which I can recommend to read, that 15% of health expenditures in hospitals is spent due to unsafe patient treatment. And I'm wondering which proportion of this huge amount of money is spent due to the second victim phenomenon and the insufficient treatment of second victims. As there's sufficient evidence to show that psychological preconditions of healthcare workers, of course, will increase the likelihood of medical error. So, getting into medical education with this, creating a safety culture in hospitals, informing colleagues about this phenomenon and addressing this issue to healthcare policymakers is all crucial. If you look at the railway or the aircraft sector, there are already directives at the European Union level to make it mandatory for companies to ensure emotional and psychological support after critical events. Those directives are not in place for the healthcare sector in the European Union, but of course they should. So basically when we accept that uh, the challenges will happen for healthcare workers, we should also make it mandatory that they get help in the basic education and also throughout their working life. Why do you think these systems are in place in many domains? You mentioned railway, you mentioned air traffic control, probably because also like psychotherapy. Many of these of the domains have these support systems. And like you say, healthcare does not. Why is that? The main reason may be, as mentioned before, the belief that the patient is the one who is ill. What does it mean? If we look at a professional medical education, only those who show highest commitment will successfully complete their education and pass their exams. I was anesthesiologist at a university hospital in Germany, and from my own experience I can say that you um, get focused to treat patients no matter what happens around you, which can create the imagination or better better say creates the misbelief of becoming bulletproof for anything so you help others but don't need help yourself you are in this position because you never needed help which of course is not true and the current hierarchy fosters medical careers of people who think that they are bulletproof so i think a lot of doctors and also a lot of former doctors in leadership positions right now may think so and if the majority or the opinion leaders at least of this profession do not realize to have the need for psychological support, they simply don't demand it. So I basically think that it is not in place because the majority in the healthcare sector is not yet convinced that we need it. Maybe COVID-19 is a good opportunity to reconsider the need for the implementation of these support systems. So. In this slide, I don't think it is not helpful to talk about nurses and doctors as heroes, for example, as it supports this misbelief of being bulletproof and not having the need nor the right to seek for help. First of all, nurses and doctors are human beings, not heroes. They have needs and fears as every human has right now. So let's take a look at the railway sector, for example. If you are driving a train and somebody shows up in front of your train in order to commit suicide, you don't have any chance as train driver to help this person. You also have no guilt because it's physically impossible to stop this train before hitting the person. 
But the railway sector identified this problem, which occurs every day in Europe multiple times, as a matter of occupational safety. Since they report in the German railway system that 25% of all train drivers are not able to continue their job after such an incident without proper support. But support programs can lower that number significantly. Although it took some time to establish these support programs, they are now a no-brainer in the railway industry. So they are mandatory and they are routine. Another reason for not implementing supportive systems is the person approach in healthcare. If you make a mistake, the main response of some colleagues is still that this happened due to your insufficient knowledge or skill. That you don't have to learn more or you have to work harder to make that never happen again. Of course, we know that only looking at the sharp end of patient care is not enough. We have to detect influencing factors, organization and management culture contributing to medical error in order to understand what has to be done at the blunt end to increase patient safety. As long as we are stuck to a person approach, peer support programs may be regarded less useful than mandatory retraining of procedures, which of course will not help in the case of systematic errors at the blunt end of the system. So, changing healthcare policies is one thing. However, if we don't establish a safety culture in all areas of healthcare, these policies won't be effective at all. So, you need a top-down approach as well as a bottom-up approach to sustainably address this problem in our healthcare systems. I mean, in the end, it's nothing short of a, basically a revolution of the whole notion. What is it to be a competent healthcare professional, right, that we are talking about here, which this culture change. Yeah. Um, if I'm trying, you know, uh, also keeping the, the time a little bit in mind, trying towards, uh, you know, working towards a summary of what we said, I think it would be nice to, on the background of the concepts that you've been discussing, that we try to make this practical. So I would like to ask you, you know, if I consider myself a second victim, what can I do? If I'm a colleague to a second victim, what can I do? If I'm the leader of a second victim, what can I do? That that would be my way to try to summarize uh, our discussion here. So if we start with the potential second victim here, I I'm I recognize I'm hurt, I'm consider myself a second victim in the system that we have right now what can i do i would suggest you and any second victim to seek for help talk to a colleague who you can trust and if you cannot trust a colleague seek for help within the system or outside the earlier you seek for help the better it is okay to become a second victim so you have the right to be second victim and you have to write to get support. You should be aware that this situation is not related to a lack of professionalism or knowledge of skills. When you talk to a colleague, he or she might have become second victim him or herself. And if this does not really help, then please seek for professional help. It is okay. And it is necessary. And it is some sort of responsibility towards you and your patients to do so. Mm-hmm. And if I'm if I'm a colleague to a second victim, somebody approaches me, hey, I don't feel very well, what should I do as the colleague? 
It depends on the situation. In a traumatic event, you have to consider that the second victim might need an instant break to recover. So finishing the shift might not be a good idea in order to avoid additional dramatic mistakes of the affected second victim. But if somebody comes to you with this problem outside um, his shift, you first of all should listen to his or her story. You should reassure the second victim of having professional competence. Be empathic and don't bully this person. If you have experiences about similar events and you want to share this events, this might help as well. You could simply start asking how you can be helpful to start this conversation. And if your colleague afterwards tells you that this didn't help as much as he expected or you suspect that this was not helpful as it should be, you should encourage your colleague or even refer him or her to other resources of help like um, debriefing specialists if they are in place at your institution or the spiritual care team which takes care of patients and relatives but of course can also take care of healthcare staff. So if they are in place at your institution, you should refer to them as well. This notion of normalizing maybe happened to me as well, offering help by asking what kind of help would you actually consider helpful, right? Yes. Maybe we, we, all of us, basically, wherever we work, probably it's a good idea to get some idea around the help offers that is available in your organization, in your network, before you actually need it, right? Absolutely. And in my experience, there are a lot more resources in the system in your institution than you are actually aware of if you don't look for them. So it is like knowing where you can get the fire extinguisher. You also should know which institutions may be helpful in case of a second victim traumatization since you can become second victim yourself. And I think it's very important to know whom to talk to first in such a case. Last perspective, being a leader in a department and I, re I hear or I see, I recognize there's a second victim in my department. What should I do? I should be supportive as well and I should consider whether this person needs a little time off to recover from the situation to minimize further patient safety incidents. But I am also responsible to build up some structures of help in my department or institution. As a medical leader, I have to expect and to anticipate that sooner or later, one of my staff members will become second victim. Also, some of them will be severely affected. So, that shouldn't be a surprise to me, so I have to be prepared to support them. On the other hand, I can also create some resilience among my staff by creating a supportive environment. So, if uh, I am an autocratic leader, let's say, not accepting to talk about medical error in my institution, not accepting um, that anybody shows weakness, I cannot expect anyone to admit that he or she is psychologically affected. But if I establish a just culture concerning medical errors and if I am empath empathic and supportive and even during a crisis like COVID-19 pandemic, then they get a real chance to come to me and seek for help. I shouldn't expect everybody to come to seek for help since I already mentioned that it is very difficult for those people to admit that they have a problem, but at least they have a fair chance. 
But I have to be clear about my position that primarily my position is there to help my people and not to judge them. And in this way, I can do a lot more than any colleague can do for a second victim. And creating this culture under difficult circumstances like the current crisis due to COVID-19 is even more essential. So some of the medical leaders I talked to said, well, they don't have time to create such a culture or to treat second victims because we have to deal with the pandemic. And I think it's just the other way around. You simply cannot afford to neglect second victims. Not in normal times, of course, but during crises like this, at the moment, it's even more important to create such a just culture. And it is important to do so in order to keep your unit resilient and functional in total. So neglecting or bullying second victims will not only affect them, but everybody in the team who is now under emotional stress will be affected in a negative way. So the most important task to do for medical leaders is to create resilience and to make their teams resilient to all the situations they are facing right now that we cannot prevent. So to keep an also an open eye what is going on in the department to potentially have contingency plans. What do we do if there's a second victim who could uh, jump in there, for example, and to think about the culture? Yes, to communicate, to use positive messages, to express gratitude um, and to show that you take care for them and to keep them up to date. I think a lot of pressure and psychological burden is linked to the feeling of uncertainty. Uncertainty of what is going on, of what measures are already in place or will in place soon to overcome this critical situation. So reducing uncertainty by up-to-date information can also reduce stress in your teams. So you have to communicate more than in normal times and cannot say that you don't have time to care for your staff because you have to treat patients. That's not the right way, I think. So we have been covering the conceptual basis, we have been covering some of the more practical advice. In closing, is there anything that you would like to tell us about the second victim uh, topic? Well, if I may suggest for healthcare leaders and healthcare workers to get informed about the second victim phenomenon, the German coalition offers the previously mentioned brochure, but also to get informed about their local support systems. So to adapt these and other recommendations to their personal situation at their institution. Because if there's one thing I learned from my experiences in quality management and clinical risk management, patient safety management, is that you have to find a solution for your institution that is suitable for you, that is tailor-made. So one size does not fit all, but one size fits one. And Concluding with a positive perspective, I think that there's a huge potential for treating and preventing second victims so that hopefully in the near future, no healthcare worker has to stay traumatized. Professor Stamet, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today and inform us about all the insights that you have gained around the topic of second victim. Thank you very much for your time and have a nice day today. Thank you very much as well for talking to me and have a nice day too. Thank you.